Good evening. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Temple High. I have the task of welcoming you to our space, and it's my privilege to do that, which I will in a minute, but I am going to give you a warning. I'm going to say a couple other things, too. I'm going to take the liberty of saying a few words. So first, welcome. What an honor it is to see all of you at Temple High. We are always so incredibly proud to be the home of Valley Bay Midrash. We are delighted with the incredible year it's been. How many of you have been to a Valley Bay Midrash event sometime before tonight? And I know you'll agree with me that it's been an extraordinary year with fabulous speakers, terrific classes, and so on. So in addition to welcoming you, though, I'd like to uh, take the liberty of saying a few words about our speaker. That's not my job tonight, but I can't help myself. I'm not going to talk about his scholarship and teaching, which you're about to experience. But I want to talk for just a moment about the leadership that he provides in the Jewish world and far, far beyond. I've had the honor of studying in two of the ongoing programs at the Shalom Hartman Institute, the Rabbinic Torah Seminar and the Rabbinic Leadership Initiative. And they've both been outstanding and transformative. What Rabbi Hartman knows from his father and from his own life and from the work that he's done is that rabbis like myself, and there are hundreds of us, are desperately hungry for the opportunity to plug in for a little while to big ideas, to abstract thoughts. We are anxious and we love the opportunity to sit with our dear teachers and our dear friends and spend all day poring over texts. And by so doing, we refresh ourselves so that we can come back here and share those big ideas and those beautiful texts with you. It is an intellectual exercise, but it's not only an intellectual exercise. It is deeply transformative. As I said, there are hundreds of rabbis who come every summer. And in the RLI, the ongoing program that I participated in, I was really able to see up close that it's not just the intellectual inspiration that happens, but a very deep personal transformation. One of the things that's important to us at Valley Bay Midrash is our cooperative nature and our pluralistic ethic. Over the course of the three years that I spent with rabbis from all streams of Jewish life, we grew from a feeling of mutual respect. We appreciated each other to a very profound love and appreciation. And I still call those 30 rabbis who live and teach around the world some of my dearest, closest friends. And I want to thank you for that magnificent opportunity. And I want to say just a word, it's not only rabbis who have this opportunity through the Hartman Institute. It's Jewish educators, it's very high level leaders in the Christian world, in the Catholic world, in the Palestinian community. The Hartman Institute is truly making a profound impact in North America, in Israel, and beyond. It's a pleasure to have you here. I want to say one other word about our president, Stan Hammerman. And this is his last official event as chair of the board of Valley Beit Midrash. I often talk about the time that Rabbi Darren Kleinberg and I sat down to apply for a grant with the Jewish Community Foundation. We said to ourselves, what do we want Valley Beit Midrash to do? 
we thought about learning and pluralism and all these things, and then we came up with this idea that what we really want Valley Beit Midrash to do is improve the quality of Jewish life in Phoenix. And we thought, hmm, that's kind of bold, but we're gonna do it anyway. And the story that I don't tell as often is that from that moment, from before that moment, and throughout, we, and by we I mean mostly Rabbi Kleinberg and Rabbi Yankowitz, have had the most incredible lay partner in that project. He is often quiet, he's behind the scenes, so you may not know how incredibly dedicated, thoughtful, bright, strategic, committed, and passionate he is to this cause and to the Valley Jewish community. So it's my pleasure now to call on Stan Hamlin, Chair of the Board. Thank you, Rabbi Chernow, for your words. Thank you for everything you do for us. Good evening, everyone. Since this, this is my last hurrah, as Rabbi Chernow told me, I'm going to just share a few thoughts with you. I've always had a passion for serious Jewish learning. My grandfather, blessed memory, taught Jewish studies in Hebrew, and I was raised in a family that lived Judaism. I've been fortunate to learn from outstanding professors at Ohio State and many rabbis and teachers here in Arizona as well. When I met Rabbi Darren Kleinberg shortly after he moved to Phoenix, I recognized his passion for Jewish study and his ability to grapple with the complexities of Torah. Cheryl and I took classes from him. We attended his Shabbat services and we were wowed. When Darren approached me almost seven years ago, he was seeking an outlet for serious Jewish education and more. I told him that I was in, and he developed Valley Baby Drosh. We began the difficult task of raising money, and then we began to publicize our program. We soon found out that there was a great deal of interest in unlocking the keys to greater Jewish knowledge and debate. Rabbi Kleinberg brought in scholars from throughout the country including Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, and many, many others. When Rabbi, when Rabbi Kleinberg informed us that he was going to be moved to Northern California to be a head of school, our VBM board decided to pursue the daunting task of replacing Rabbi Kleinberg. We have been so fortunate to have Rabbi Shmuley Yankowitz as our executive director. He is our rabbi. He is our social conscience, and he is our friend. In just two years, he has developed a young leaders program. Asked, he's been asked to lead and is leading the pilot project nationwide for newlyweds known as Honeymoon in Israel. He's enhanced the Start Me Up program. He's taught many classes, and he's brought in world-renowned scholars such as Rabbi David Aronson, Rabbi Sharon Rouse, Anita Diamant, Rabbi Art Green, Rabbi Ed Feinstein, and our distinguished guest tonight, Rabbi Danielle Hartman. Those of you who received Shmuley's posts on Facebook are aware of his constant pursuit of justice for all. You may have also seen his pictures that he keeps on Facebook, not just of his beautiful family, but also of Shmuley and President Obama, 
Shmuley and Michael Bloomberg, Shmuley and Michael Douglas, Shmuley and Bloomberg, Shmuley and Ruth Messenger, Shmuley and Ellie Wiesel, Shmuley and Natan Sharansky, and countless others. So Shmuley, since this is my last program tonight, how about you may have a post, okay? <laughs> I want to thank a few people before I turn this over to Shmuley. First, Temple Chai and Rabbi Mary Chernow. There would be no Valley Beit Midrash without the support of this synagogue, which has always devoted itself to powerful Jewish learning. Your financial support, and more importantly, your dedication to making sure that VBM succeeds continues to be vital. I'm also grateful to Rabbi Darren Kleinberg, who taught us that meaningful Jewish education and debate can not only thrive in the desert, but actually serve as a role model for 21st century Jewish programming throughout the country. The Board, the board of Valley Matri Rush attends and supports our programs, not just in name and financially, but by being dedicated and committed to our programs. Thank you to our current board members, Judy Gottschalk, Josh Wortlieb, Dr. Jeff Packer, Sam Sachs, Wesley Goldman, and our new incoming board chair, Mark Feldman. Would board stand please be recognized? Thank you also to our previous board members, Alana Storch and Dr. Randy Rubenzik. Our new board chair, Mark Feldman, brings strong leadership to our program. He currently serves in leadership positions with the Jewish Federation and here at Temple Chai, as well as Valadega Drash. He is committed to making the greater Phoenix Jewish community a better place for all of us. Thank you to my wonderful wife, Cheryl, who shares my passion for learning and supports me and VBM with new ideas, editing these speeches, preparing refreshments for the board meetings, and serving as a springboard for our new ideas. If you agree that Valley Bay Pizras serves as a beacon of hope in these challenging times, please support us financially as we seek to move our program to even greater heights. Our leader, Rob Shmuley, is leading us to a future filled with excitement. He's not just the leader of EBM, he is a role model for Jews everywhere. If he sees injustice towards the homeless, the disenfranchised, the police, Israel, if he sees needed improvements to public education or attitudes in welcoming converts to the Jewish family, whatever challenges that come forward, Shmuley does not sit by and say, what a shame and pray that injustice stops. He follows Abraham Joshua Hessel's wise direction to pray with our feet. I'm grateful to have worked with him in the last two years. I look forward to learning from him in the future. And now, Rob Shmuley, if you would come forward to share your thoughts with us and introduce tonight's guest speaker. Wonderful, wonderful to be with you all tonight. Thank you, Rabbi Chernow, Temple Chai, our wonderful host tonight. Thank you, Stan Hammerman, our incredible chair. Thank you, all of you. I feel your energy. I feel your positivity. I feel your hunger for learning and for community. And it's tremendous to be with you all. I have a favor tonight. And there's a survey in the packet you got tonight. It only has two questions. It will take you 15 seconds to fill out. It's because we want your feedback. We want to do better. And so if you have feedback of how we can go to the next level, 
and never be content and complacent. Please give that feedback, positive or critical, uh, in whatever way we can do that together. Great. So, as an organization striving to be the innovative educational and outreach organization for the greater Jewish Phoenix community, we are guided by a core rabbinic teaching that scholars enhance peace in the world. In our rapidly changing times, we need more reflection and new intellectual and spiritual paradigms to meet those challenges and opportunities. We need new wisdom to foster peace and justice in the world. We need new challenges to understand our rapidly evolving Jewish community and world. And so we can reflect upon one challenge we learn from the Talmud and from the Shulchan Aruch. A parent and child must both study Torah. When possibilities exist for only one, the adult's personal needs take precedence to the child's. Now this is counterintuitive because we so deeply value, as we should, our youth education. And yet, as the Kutzker Rebbe famously replied to the question, how do I make sure my kids care about Judaism? His response was, you go study, and make sure you even study in front of your kids and in front of your grandkids. And so the tradition teaches us the core of Jewish education and, and community building is to put the responsibility back on ourselves, the inspiration back on ourselves, to continue to learn. And so we're striving to do that together, to inspire values of pluralistic Jewish education, to bring together a cr diverse cross-section of the community, to encourage greater collaboration, to leverage our resources, to enhance our community discourse, and to cultivate the next generation of Jewish leaders in our community. And so we're doing that through bringing the greatest talent and minds across the globe of Jewish leaders through panels and speakers and panels, excuse me, and classes and a Musar retreat we just did. As names were just mentioned over the last few years with Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Talushkin, Rabbi Brouse, tonight with Rabbi Hartman, and we're continuing to raise the bar. And we also recently produced our first journal, which if you haven't read yet, is available out there tonight called Kolot, which is celebrating local and global thought leaders in the Jewish community to highlight the most uh, important thought leadership of our time. Many of these fellows are in the room tonight, our first cohort of Start Me Up, our second cohort of Start Me Up, who are launching social entrepreneurship ventures in our community to continue to innovate, that to train leaders is not just about social programming, not just about religious programming, but empowering the next generation to incubate and develop the most important ideas on a grassroots level to engage more Jews and create change in our community. We were chosen as the pilot community for Honeymoon Israel as we're leaving in just a few weeks, taking 20 couples from a very inclusive acceptance model to a transformative experience, and we already have dozens of programs of follow-up set up. Pleased to announce our opening fall event for this October with Rabbi David Wolpe from Los Angeles, who is a pulpit rabbi and author, a great order, and please mark that date on your calendar. A sheet was handed out, so make sure you leave with that tonight. I want to thank our, one of our VBM founders, our incredible chair, Stan Hammerman, and of course his wonderful wife, Cheryl Hammerman,
for all they have done that VBM would not exist without him, without them, who has been an amazing board chair, who has modeled empowerment, humble empowerment, enabling me and us to thrive. Stan is the kind of leader who will not step away from our work, but will continue to support in other ways. I'm personally and collectively deeply grateful to Stan. And his friends and, board and our board has come together to thank Stan to create a Hammerman family lecture series to fund the lecture series to continue to honor the great work the Hammermans have done for us. If you were not one of the ones who supported that yet, please feel free in the next week to, to support that. In a week, we'll tell you the families and board members who are supported. And we hope that many years of learning will come about from this Hammerman Lecture Fund. I want to thank Judy Gottschalk, who this is also the end of her board service and all she has done for us. And thank you all for your support. You don't just come for the learning. You come up and you say, how can we help? How can we help make this a community that is guided by values, that is guided by our, our, our traditional and contemporary Jewish values to help transform our community and the world? And now, I'd like to introduce our speaker for the night. Rabbi Dr. Danielle Hartman is president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, the leading global institution for Jewish education and leadership. And he's the director of the I Engage Project. If you haven't seen that, check it out online. He has a doctorate in Jewish philosophy from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, a Master of Arts in Political Philosophy from NYU, a Master of Arts in Religion from Temple University, and rabbinic ordination from the Shalom Hartman Institute. Rav Daniel is the founder of some of the most extensive education, training, and enrichment programs for scholars, educators, rabbis, and religious and lay leaders in Israel and North America. He's the author of The Boundaries of Judaism, the co-editor of Judaism and the Challenges of Modern Life, the co-author of Spheres of Jewish Identity, and the lead author of Speaking I Engage, creating a new narrative regarding the significance of Israel for Jewish life. In addition, he's a prominent essayist, blogger, and lecturer on issues of Israeli politics, policy, Judaism, and the Jewish community. His new book, Putting God Second, How to Save Religion from, him, from Itself, his topic tonight, a foreshadow for the book that's coming out very shortly, is scheduled to be published by Beacon Press in February 2016. He's currently working on his next book after that, which is entitled, Who Are the Jews? Healing a Divided People. I had the great schut, the great merit to spend the day with Rabbi Hartman, and I can say that he is not only a courageous paradigm shifter who is agitating for the next level of growth and models for what will enable Jewish life to, to grow, he is a thoughtful visionary who is challenging us and supporting us to consider that he is a humble leader, and most importantly, he is a warm mensch. He flew all the way from Israel and to be with us and to be with the North American Jewish community, it's a great honor and pleasure to call up Rabbi Hart. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's truly a great pleasure and, a, and an honor to be here. Um, and thank you for those beautiful words um, from all of you. As some of you know, um, 
I have a brother-in-law who was killed in the first war in Lebanon. And um, since then, um, something that Israelis do, that's um, our Memorial Day in Israel is very different from Memorial Day here in the United States. Um, we don't open up our pools. <laughs> um, I don't know if you ever close yours. Um, <laughs> but there's no special sales. Um, about 20, 25% of Israelis go to cemeteries. Um, and they go because there's a family member that they have, uh, a brother, a sister, um, brother-in-law, father, son, um, who died. And the ceremony is very, it's raw. Everything in Israel is raw. Um, it's not very, it's not polished. It's like, it hits. And it's, uh, it, it follows the same order every year. There's a representative of the government who comes and says something usually not that meaningful. <laughs> Actually, my favorite one in 30-something years um, is the person who now holds the presidency of the state of Israel, uh, President Rivlin. He's the only one who came and actually spoke like, he just spoke, he wasn't speaking about the, he just spoke to us like a mensch, and he is a mensch. Um, a family member says Kaddish, um, because it's a military ceremony, some guns are shot, as if that's relevant, so there's a little banging. And then the cantor um, says a prayer. And every year, it's the only part of a service that just, it just tears me apart. Not emotionally, but there's something that I can never understand. The, the cantor comes and sings El Malerachamim, and he pleads to God on high to bring rest to those who died. And he says, he died to defend the country and to sanctify God's name. And every year, I loved my brother-in-law. He was a hero, truly. Israel could never repay him for what he gave the country, even before he died. As a pilot, the missions he was on, the things that he did, it was remarkable. I honor him. I miss him. But why do we say that he died to sanctify God's name? Why is dying for Israel dying to sanctify God's name? Why is God part of the story? And when God becomes part of the story, is it a good part of the story? Does it add? Does it detract? Now, I can understand that for certain people, if you say that you've died for the sanctification of God's name, somehow they're more comforted. Maybe God will ensure that he has a place in the world to come. Maybe you're you're, you're enveloping his act in some religious context. But does the religious lens, when it's married with 
the interests of our country, does that make us a greater country? Or does that cause challenges? And every year, when my, when Arles, when he died in Lebanon, he died in a war that actually, over time, we've now discovered wasn't such a good war. It was actually the first time that the Israel Defense Forces didn't fight as the Israel Defense Forces. There was a part that was, and there was a part that was, we, we had this expansionist fantasy of setting up a new order in Lebanon. I, he, we only fought Syrians. We didn't fight terrorists. So why are you saying it? Why is God's name sanctified? What, is it anything that I do? Well, because I'm the chosen people. I get up in the morning. If I take a step, I've sanctified. I'm, I'm sanctifying God's name. What role does God play in our world? What role does God play in our community, in our country? What role does God play for the, for the world at large? See, the 20th century was a profoundly secular century. All the major conflicts were secular in nature. Almost all. The end of the 20th century, you begin to see a shift. In the 21st century, God and religion have returned with full force as shapers of the world in which we live. And it's not self-evident that we've progressed. God, monotheism, doesn't seem to always be a force for good. Woody Allen used to joke, or he didn't joke, he used to took it very seriously, when he said, I believe in God, but God is an underachiever. One of the things that we're discovering or re reconnecting to is that it seems that people who believe in God are underachievers. Every one of our ethical traditions pushes, every one of our religious traditions, excuse me, pushes for the ethical. Every one of our religious traditions says that to love God entails loving your neighbor. Every one of our religious traditions has a whole set of great texts challenging you to do good. Why is there such a big gap between what our religions command and what it seems to, um, to be that the people who advocate and are loyal to these religious traditions in fact observe? Why is there a gap? And it seems that there always was a gap. Because that's what the prophets teach us. The prophets have God saying to the Jewish people, what are you doing here? Why are you showing up in my temple? Who asked this of you? And the answer is, who asked it of you? You. I'm at the temple because you told me to show up. And I'm showing up and I'm showing loyalty to you and dedication to you. And God is saying, what's the matter with you? Your hands are stained with crime. You're offering perfect sacrifices, but you're not a mensch. 
What about the ethical? And it seems that people, or that religion, obligates the good, but somehow, in the context of a life of faith, very often, that commandment is, is, is unheard. Or, I'm not arguing that people of faith are worse, but it's not self-evident that people of faith are better. How many people are dying in the name of God? How many people are being insulted in the name of God? How many people are being judged and hurt and condemned in the name of God? Why is it love of neighbor is somehow being removed from religious discourse? Now, there are two very common answers given to this question. The first is original sin. First answer is religion is just fine. The problem is not with religion, the problem is with whom? People. God's just fine. But a perfect God could give a perfect Torah. But as the technical term, garnished healthy. <laughs> Nothing helps. This doesn't help. Because God's giving that Torah to you. Who are you? So the failure of religion is simply one more evidence to what God already knew right after the flood, and that is that people's inclination are evil from their birth. God loved the creation, but God couldn't create what God wanted, and God got stuck with us. And God tries to fix it with a commandment here and a commandment there and a teaching, at the end of the day, human history is going to be mediocre, not because of religion, but despite religion, because human beings are mediocre. That's the original sin argument. And basically, there is no problem with religion. It's like when people say, you know, Lahabdila, you know, there is no religious terrorism. There are no Jewish, Christian, or Muslim terrorists. There are Jews, Christians, and Muslims who are terrorists, but who kill for other, it's not their religion, it's them. That's one position. The opposite position is that all the fault lies in religion. God is not great, as Hitchin writes. New atheists say the problem is, is that religion is fundamentally corrupt. That the evil in the world is the direct result of the fact that religion obligates you to hate the other, to hate the one that's different, to hate the one that doesn't believe like you, to hate that one that has, who has a different sexual orientation than you, to hate the one who might have a different color skin or ethnic origin than you. There are so many chapters in our texts but so often I, I dream, like, I, like I'll wake up and it won't be there anymore. Like, I hate Deuteronomy 20. I hate that chapter. It's like one of the worst chapters in the Bible. And like sometimes like I open the Bible, like, is it still there? <laughs> like then I wake up like, why didn't you ask me before you put it in? 
So the atheists say, it's not that we're corrupt, it's that religion is fundamentally evil and corrupt. And if you get rid of religion, you have solved the problem. I want to offer a third direction because I think neither of them is fully correct. Without doubt, our religious traditions are filled with commandments that we ought to ignore. And without doubt, some of the failures of, of, of humankind are because of humankind. But I believe that there is another cause. I believe that religion obligates the good. Religion demands of us to walk in the way of God by doing what is just and right, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love the strangers for we were strange in the land of Egypt. Judaism, Christianity, Islam are filled with profound moral commandments that those who claim that religion is fundamentally corrupt don't see. They're there. But I think something happens to us when God enters into the room. I call this religion's autoimmune disease. Something happens in which religion undermines its own goals and aspirations. There is a core inadequacy and imperfection in us. That's true. But very often, when God enters into our life, we change. And we begin to morally underachieve despite what religion obligates of us. It's almost as if, as those of you who understand what an, auto, an autoimmune disease is where a part of your body attacks itself. My argument is that within certain perspectives of religion, God attacks God's own agenda inadvertently. Because when God enters into our life, very often some of our fuses flip. Something happens to us. And if we want to fulfill the responsibility of religious life, we have to understand what happens to us. And it's only if we understand what is happening to us could we possibly overcome it. Because at the end of the day, all of those who speak about um, getting rid of God, are ultimately only speaking to themselves. For most people, or for people committed to religious life, God is. God is a part of who they are. And to tell them to get rid of God, to get rid of religion, is, is, is irrelevant. God is part of human history. Religion is part of, this, of the world in which we live. We have to fight to ensure that religion stops undermining its own aspirations. Now, why does religion do this? What is it about God that when God enters into the room, something goes wrong? God has an effect on us, which has the potential to undermine our moral aspirations and our moral obligations. The core essence 
of the ethical. In most traditions, but let's just speak about Judaism for tonight. The core ethical impulse is that you shall not remain indifferent when another person is in need. Your core, what is a mensch? A mensch is someone who walks in the world and sees people. They see somebody. Did you ever hurt somebody's feelings? I'm sure some of you might have at one time or another. <laughs> Do you remember the experience of saying something? Like, like I was ADHD. I still am ADHD. I was off the wall. Now I'm a little less off the wall. I also meditate now. It calms me down. I don't eat so much sugar. I have a more, more under control. But part of being ADHD is that you're just sort of, you act before you think. It's like stuff comes out of your mouth. Right? It's like, and you're just, you're just a vildechai. You're just like, wow. It's like, so sometimes like you're with people and I'm just, and you say something and you think you're funny and you think you're going to get attention and it's going to, people are going to hold you in greater esteem for being so cool and saying something so clever. And you say something and it hurts somebody's feelings. And then their face, they blush. Their face changes. And all of a sudden, what do you do? You see them. And like, you wish you could just take it back. Like you could put a reset button. Because beforehand, you didn't see them. You just saw yourself. You saw the moment for your being cool, for your being clever. A moral life is when you walk and see people. You see their needs. You see their effect on you. You see their responsibility to them. You see their pain. You don't change the channel. To be a moral human being is to see somebody else and to see yourself as having to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And when you understand that, life is simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. See them. See people. To not remain indifferent is the core feature of almost all of Jewish ethics and is a core characteristic of almost every one of our greatest heroes. What's the problem? God commands us not to be indifferent. But when God enters into the room, God blinds us. To be a moral human being, you have to see. But God inhibits your vision in two very different ways. One, which I call God intoxication, is that this one God, the God of the universe, the God who has so much power enters into the room God takes up so much space that God becomes primary. And you actually think that to fulfill the word of God, that if God commands you to kill you, commands me to kill you, that of course I would do so because all that's important, what do I see? God, by definition, changes the equation of what's important and what's not important. 
And this is one of the great challenges of monotheism as distinct from idolatry. Sometimes I wonder whether idolatry wouldn't have been better because we had smaller gods. The notion of this one transcendent being obligates people or creates a religious consciousness in which religious piety means and entails seeing God and only seeing God. And consequently, inadvertently, God could command love your neighbor. But love of neighbor is always second to love of God. And that's why I could kill in the name of God. And that's why I could get up and say, of course, if you're committed to Judaism in the state of Israel, of course we don't want to accept um, 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 refugees from Africa. And I'm not talking to you whether we should accept 600,000, 500,000, 400, 300. One! Tell me how many! But in the name of God, Israel has to be a Jewish state. I don't see you. The minute religion enters into the discourse, something else becomes a priority for me. And in the name of God, ethics and humanity become diminished. And no matter what God says, in the name of the prophets, God says, hello, you didn't listen to me. God's not aware of God's effect on people. So it's not that religion doesn't obligate the good. The problem is, is that we don't know how to live with God. And monotheism creates the potential for religion becoming profoundly distorted, in which love of God makes us religiously compelled to be morally blind. There's another feature which is not God intoxication, but which I call God manipulation. Something else happens when God enters into the room. And it's almost the opposite. The first one is, all I see is God. Everything else diminishes. Because to be in the presence of God is to recognize that only God is important. But in monotheism, something else remarkable happens. When God enters into the room, human beings have a yetzer hara, have an evil inclination to want to control that God, or at least to control that God for themselves. God intoxication makes you blind to others because you only see God. God manipulation makes you blind to others because you only see yourself. Because if there is one God, who does this God love best? Who? Me. Now imagine, one of the great paradoxes of monotheism is that it has given birth to one of the greatest idolatries of human in human history the idolatry of self, the idolatry of my religious community, 
the idolatry of my religious denomination, the idolatry of my nation. This God, we want him. I'm chosen. No, I'm chosen. No, God loves me. We're the best because we came first. You're not the best because you came first. You came first, but God left you, and now God loves me. We're the best because we came second. <laughs> you came second. <laughs> We're the best because we came last. God loves me. We're the best because at the end of days, God's going to love me. All of this language, by the way, does not exist in idolatry. Because in idolatry, we all have our own gods. There is no notion of, superior, of, of superiority because each community has its own God. One God either makes us diminish the importance of the ethical and make ritual more important, or the one God creates the fantasy of my own superiority as I create the religious ideology which will justify this one God being the sole possession of me or my community. Both God intoxication and God manipulation undermine religion's moral aspirations. And if we are going to have a better religious tradition. If we monotheists in general, and we Jews in particular, are going to want to stand for and represent the highest of what human beings should morally aspire for, we have to create a different relationship with God. A relationship that I coined putting God second. Now what do I mean by putting God second? There are two core features that I believe can overcome this autoimmune disease. One is to create a religious community which stands for the primacy of the good, and the second is to create a religious community which stands for the independence of the good. And I want to spend just a few moments on each one of them through the lens of a very famous text, which I'm sure everybody here has learned many, many times. A potential convert comes before Hillel and says, teach me all of Torah while I stand on one foot. Shammai had a similar request and wasn't very impressed, and kicks him out of the room. I don't want to, you want to convert? I want you to be serious. If you're not serious, get out of the room. Hillel looks at him and realizes that the question could be a symptom of the fact that he's not serious, but it could also be a symptom of the fact that he says, you know, there's so much stuff in Judaism. You want me to be Jewish? I already have a headache from all the laws that I've heard. Give me the essence. What's the core of this religious tradition? What does a Jew stand for? I don't want to, I'm not interested in a cheap, easy conversion, but I want to know. There's like so many commands. It's like, I, there's so much stuff, and there's so much stuff, I don't even know what you're standing for anymore. Tell me what's your essence. And Hillel converts him and says, what is hateful unto you, 
do not do unto others. That is the whole Torah, and the rest is commentary. Go and study. Let's analyze this. Because within this text, the notion of the primacy of the good and the independence of the good, two core principles that could save us from ourselves, that could save us from this autoimmune disease, are laid forth. The first, the primacy of the good. There is no doubt that in every religious tradition, while we obligate the good, there are numerous commandments and places which point to the fact that the good is secondary. And that devotion to God is more important. Hillel says that is not or cannot be Judaism. What's the core? What is hateful unto you, do not do unto others. That's the whole Torah. Now what does that mean, that's the whole Torah? Is that in fact the whole Torah? Of course it's not the whole Torah. Open up the Torah. Half of Torah, half of the 613 commandments deal with temple worship. Half of them. Just temple worship took up which cow, which goat, what you do with their blood. Filled lots of stuff. You can spend a lot of time figuring out that stuff. What to do, how to sh- the whole thing. And I didn't even get to Kashrus yet. I'm just, you know, I didn't even get there. And I didn't get to the whole list of who you're allowed to sleep with, when and why. We didn't even get to this one. None of that. There's a lot of stuff in Judaism that has nothing to do with love your neighbor as yourself. Or, what's, excuse me, what's hateful unto you, do not do unto others. So how can Hillel say, this is the whole Torah? It's not the whole Torah. When he says this is the whole Torah and the rest is commentary, Hillel is offering an idea that I would suggest is one of the most important ideas that those who are religiously committed understand and assimilate. Not as an act of rebellion against Judaism, but an act of fulfilling the Torah that Hillel is asking us to fulfill. If this is the whole Torah and the rest is commentary, one way of understanding it is that as a general rule, Judaism is not just the ethical. Judaism is ritual, Judaism is faith, Judaism is culture. Judaism is language, Judaism is nationhood. There's a lot of features. Anytime you reduce religion to one thing, it's becoming too shallow. Precisely when you have a rich definition of what religion is about, are there ways in which your soul could be touched and that you could be inspired? But what Hillel is saying is that anytime, anytime you, or within your religious tradition, you have a question of priority, what comes first? The ritual, faith, or the ethical? If the ritual or faith contradicts the ethical, the ethical has to trump. Don't reduce religious life to the ethical. You can't. That's not what religious life is about. But if in the name of God, if as a result of your obligation or sense of what Torah requires of you, if it ever reaches a point 
where you treat somebody the way you would not want to be treated, you're violating the core of Torah. That's what Hillel says. Believe in God. Go to synagogue and pray. Eat kosher. I have lots of things I want you to do. Keep the Jewish calendar. But what is hateful unto others, what's hateful unto you, do not do unto others, is the key that you have to use to arbitrate all conflicts. When what is hateful unto you is the key, then when God enters into the room, God, God's self, has to live up to that same condition. This is the essence of what Abraham taught us. When God wants to destroy the city of stone, Abraham turns to God and says, It's forbidden for you to do such a thing. Will the judge of the whole earth not deal justly? He says, you cannot, you cannot create a new prioritization where to be with you means to forget the ethical. You are obligated by that same ethical principle. What would religion look like if that core priority was an essential feature? How would different Jews of different denominations talk towards each other? Could I ever insult somebody in the name of my faith? I know, I, I, it's, it's, it's a way I've been living for years. I have a general principle. I don't mean to insult anybody here. I have a general principle that there's no Jew's home that I won't eat with, eat. Because to me, kashrut cannot enable me not to eat in a Jew's home. I made this decision many years ago. And since then, every time I go to somebody's home who doesn't keep kosher, I feel like I'm on an airplane being served one of these 14 covered <laughs> When you make a leap of love to somebody, they make a leap back. Oh, Rabbi Harvey, you're coming to my house. What can I do for you? Instead of me saying, I can't come to your house, because what is hateful unto me, do not unto others. If my ritual does not enable me to see people, if my ritual does not enable me to live with people, if my ritual does not enable me to care for people, there's something wrong with my priorities. The primacy of the good has to define the way a community understands itself. But the big challenge is, and here I want to warn you, I want to warn you from misunderstanding me. I am not talking about reducing religion to the ethical. That would be horrific. I'm not just, religion is not just about how I treat other human beings. A life of faith a life of spiritual experience are critical and important to me. And when religion gets reduced to the ethical, it loses its holiness. 
I don't want religion to lose its holiness. I just want us to understand that holiness is most expressed when we give primacy to the good in moments of conflict. But there's a second step which is even more important. And that's not the primacy of the good, that's the independence of the good. When Hillel is asked, what's the whole Torah, he says, what's hateful unto you, do not do unto others. That's the whole Torah. What's hateful unto you, do not do unto others. Here, you have two questions you have to fill out before you leave. I have a question for you now. It's your test. Does that sound like anything within the Torah? What verse in the Torah says, what's hateful unto you, do not do unto others? Great answer. The answer is, love your neighbor as yourself. Why didn't Hillel use that verse? Leviticus 19, standing right for him. Somebody's coming to him and saying, tell me the whole Torah. What's the essence? The natural answer should have been, let me quote for you a verse in the Torah. What's the most important commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Hillel quotes a sentence that doesn't appear anywhere in the Jewish tradition before him. It doesn't appear in Torah. But he couldn't have said, love your neighbor as yourself. I could have given the same speech. It would have been just as meaningful. <laughs> but it's interesting. When Hillel comes to teach the notion of the primacy of the good, he's also teaching the notion of the independence of the good. The independence of the good means that religion doesn't get to determine the good. Religion has to mirror the good that we know independent of religion. That as human beings created in the image of God, we have access to the good. I don't learn, thou shalt not kill from the Ten Commandments. If you do, we're in trouble. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> what would happen? It's like you're running after someone. It's too late. Hillel teaches something that Abraham, in the same text that I quoted beforehand, in which Abraham not only insists on the centrality of the good as defining God, that the judge of the whole earth can't not deal justly, but when God says he wants to destroy the city of stone, and Abraham begins to argue, Abraham assumes that there is an ethical commandment which is independent of God, and which God is obligated to. And as Euthyphro in the Socratic dialogue asks, is it good because the gods love it, or gods, do the gods love it because it is good? And the ultimate answer is that gods love it because it is good. When religion defines the ethical, when religion shapes it, then it is subject to divine or God manipulation. Then in the name of God, who you determine loves you best, 
It's very easy for you to kill, to maim. It's very easy for you to reinterpret your tradition to serve your interests. God loves me best and therefore anything that I do is fine. The ultimate get out of jail card, the ultimate immunity. God loves me. And if God loves me, I can do anything that I want to you. Because you're not me. You're not God's beloved. I can chop off heads. I can hurt. I can insult. Because it's not that I don't see you. I do. I really see you. But I see somebody who's inferior. Because when God's on my side, I get to do anything I want. The independence of good says, God entering the room, not only does God not change the priorities, but God doesn't get to shape the good. Now for many people, this idea is very scary. How am I supposed to know what's good? I love the myth that I can turn to a religious tradition which will be like a slot machine. I have a question, I get an answer. What fantasy. I don't know what to, good, what to do. I'm alone. I want to be redeemed from my inadequacy. And there's a myth that religion will provide that for you. Well, first of all, it's simply a myth. Because even when you look to religion to provide for you an answer, what you're basically doing is turning to a human being to interpret for you what religion says. And all you're doing is instead of taking responsibility for your own moral conscience, you're letting somebody else determine for you what is in fact they believe your moral conscience should be. There is no escape from human beings having to decide. independence of the good and the primacy of the good. Now, I could present these ideas, but it's not enough. We have to create a community which learns this Torah. If the primacy of the good and the independence of the good are deemed to be secular, anti-religious notions, then anybody who's not committed to God and to religion in the first place, who isn't subject to the autoimmune disease, will buy in and that's fine. It's easy for those who aren't subject to the autoimmune disease to be free from it. We have to recognize that every one of the monotheistic traditions, including Judaism, has a cultural war on our hands. There are sources which say A, and there are sources which say B. There are chapters which point to A, and there's chapters which point to B. As people in a Beit Midrash, as people committed to learning, and the notion of why it's so important that an adult should learn is because you have to set a tone. It's not just 
Do we know enough so that Judaism will continue? The question is whether Judaism is worthy of continuing. And that's not going to be shaped by whether our children have a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah. That's going to be shaped by what is the type of Judaism that you stand for. What is the language and Jewish narrative that prevails in our community? You shape that narrative. You're going to shape the Judaism that your children are going to grow up into. We have to recognize that Hillel did not speak out of a secular, atheist impulse. Hillel spoke out of a Jewish impulse. Abraham spoke out of a Jewish, religious impulse. We have to learn. And one of the great mistakes that we can make is to assume that our tradition is just fine. It's one of the reasons why I don't agree with President Obama's statement that there is no such thing as Islamic threat. And I'm not getting into American politics here. I have enough tzoros in this room. <laughs> I don't need to get into your stuff. You do whatever you want to do. I'm just talking about, even if you're pro-Obama, it's okay to say that there's something that you might disagree with. So like, let's just, that's, not my, that's not my package today. There is no such thing as Islamic terror. There's only Muslims who do, there's, there's people who do terror. One of the features, or one of the ways in which you heal a religion from itself, is you have to recognize the sources that are problematic within your religious tradition. There is Jewish terror, there is Muslim terror, and there is Christian terror. Evil is done in the name of God. They're not perverting it. It's there. And it's only if you recognize that it's there could you recognize the potential inherent within your tradition and begin the cultural enterprise of creating a counter-narrative. Because if you say there is, that's not enough. You, don't even, you, you assume that the narrative is so self-evident, but somebody else is opening up the scripture. Oh, no, jihad is only the inner struggle. It's, you, grow up. What, do you think they're not reading the text? What, do you think Deuteronomy 20 doesn't tell us that we could go to war against anybody we want to, regardless of the circumstances, and God will always be with us, and the only question is, whether we kill everybody or whether we give them an alternative or an option to be our slaves. Yeah, that's Deuteronomy 20. And now we have power. So when we were powerless, Deuteronomy 20 was like, who cares? I don't have an army, so I have to worry about morality of war. But now I have an army. Christendom has armies. Islam has armies. The devil, as Shakespeare says, quotes scripture. The devil doesn't misquote scripture. When you recognize that within our traditions there are two voices, one which creates the possibility of God changing the equation, then you can begin the process of laying claim to your tradition teaching a different Torah. 
There are 50 pages, 50, 50 cases. Everyone has to know them. So that when we speak in this voice, we're not speaking from outside of the tradition, we're speaking from inside of the tradition, because it's only when we speak from inside of the tradition that we have a chance not merely of saving ourselves, but of saving our tradition. And to conclude, and then I'll open up if there's any questions or comments. Putting God second sounds very heretical to people. If God is anything, God should be first. But what happens if the only way to put God first is to put God second? What happens if to enable God's inner goals to create a religious tradition of one type is only possible if we put God second? One of the deepest and most important expressions of what it means to be a person of faith is the idea within our tradition that you're supposed to walk humbly before God. To be a believer in God is to fundamentally understand that you are not God. A person who recognizes that they are not God is a person who sees people. But therein lies the struggle. It is precisely a person of faith who is taught that they have to see because the world does not, the sun does not rise and set on them. When you realize that you are not the end all, then you can begin the process of seeing another and living a moral life. God commands you to see yourself such. The problem is, is that the same God who commands you to do that also creates the potential for profound arrogance and even greater moral blindness. The question is not whether people of faith or atheists are more moral. What's better? Who has a greater chance of doing the good? An atheist or a person of faith? Hopefully both will. The serious question we face is not whether not to believe. The question is, what are the consequences of belief? And how do we create a tradition which represents, in our mind, the best of what human beings should be? God, in Genesis 18, says, Abraham, I have picked you because I know that you're going to teach your children that to walk in the way of God is to do what is just and right. What we've learned at the end of the 20th century and now in the 21st century, that to walk in the way of God
could mean many other things. And if you think that the Jewish community is immune from it, if you think that's only Islam's problem, you're not connecting to the core reality and dangers of Jewish power. A powerless people is always a moral people. We are now a powerful people. We are powerful in Israel, but we're also powerful here. We have tremendous political power. We have tremendous economic power. What do we stand for? We need to stand for a Judaism which believes that to walk in the way of God is to do what is just and right. We have to enable God's message to come through. And I believe the only way to do so is to understand the religious duty of putting God second. Thank you. challenge one statement you made about five minutes ago, and that's when you said you will take questions and comments. <laughs> I want to welcome folks with questions, comments you can save for dessert. Those with questions, if you want to line up in the middle here, I will set up a microphone. Someone who would like to pose a question. Pick one. <laughs> to be a believer means you have to fundamentally, fundamentally understand that you are not God, right? But very firmly, I have uh, learned and digested and believed in the idea of your fellow Elohim, that I am indeed made in the image of God. So therefore, like, I'm really having a hard time understanding what this means that I am not God, because I think I'm Daka and God. And that might be like a little no, it's not but It's a great question. another lecture, and the, uh, there is a temptation in the question and answer to give a second lecture. Um, why Judaism? The one thing I would connect to the first part, and then I want to go to your first really, really difficult question, um, is that if Judaism 
stands, or if our communion stands for moral and spiritual excellence, then the answer of why be Jewish will become self-evident. Now, I want to say, doesn't mean, I'm not, okay, first of all, I'm not just, I, I won't be able to have the dialogue like this. We could talk a little more. The only, is that if our community reflects something powerful and meaningful, then people on the outside will want to join. That younger people who are growing up will want to be a part of it. If our tradition is mediocre, if it doesn't have, if people feel that to be more religious is to be less morally committed, why would any one of your, why would anybody want to join? Now, I know that, because you asked me that, if I understood the second question of why be Jewish for your generation, the only answer I know, the only answer I know is that if our community stands for something great, that people will join. If our community does not, they won't. And it has nothing to do with why Judaism and not Christianity and not Islam. Can you define that greatness? Yes. I, could, I can't do all of it now. We'll have to talk more later. But, but part of it is a religious tradition in which the ethical is the arbiter in all moments of conflict. That at no moment that your life of faith and that your commitment to ritual, that a person who enters into it feels that there is a moral excellence that, that, that is that is that is that is that founds this whole process. Every time in my own religious, I've been teaching now for what is it? Since I'm 24, I'm 56. It's a while. I've been doing this for a while. I'm like, I was my whole life. I've been dying to be an alpha cocker. Like I feel like it's like I like you know it's like I was always too young for my job. Now I feel like I'm just the right age. Like <coughs> it's like I've been doing it for a while. Whenever you teach an idea that's, that's, that's powerful, identity follows. Identity, choosing a religious tradition is not an act, it's just sort of, it evolves. And throughout my life, people have wanted to join, and it's only because something meaningful is happening. I believe, here, and I'm, I can't talk about it, tonight I was just talking about one idea, which I believe will elevate our religious tradition. If it's not satisfactory, we'll talk later. But, uh, to your first question, there is no doubt that there is an inner conflict. You're supposed to believe that you're almost God. God creates human beings in God's image. That doesn't mean that you're God. You, God-like is not the same as God. God-like, the minute you make, this is a, it's a, it's a big tension. Because the Jewish tradition pushes you not to be humble. The Jewish tradition pushes you to change the world, to rule the world and master it. It pushes you to do so. But to be creating the image of God is not to create in you that you are God. The minute you do that, you're idolatrous. That's the best I could do for now. If there's more, we'll do because there's a few more people we have. We could do it some more afterwards. Okay? Thank you. Yes, please. <laughs> no, I waited so long. Come on.
Thank you. A great question, but it, it, for me it doesn't make a difference. Um, because Torah is the tradition of my people. Whether the five books of Moses were written by J, E, P, and D over a period of approximately 700 years, finally put together by the redactor in the 2nd or 3rd century, or whether it was written by God in the 12th century BCE, given in some totality, um, over 40 years in the desert, doesn't matter to me because at the end of the day, they, together, <coughs> they are my religious tradition. Because my problem is not just Deuteronomy 20. My problem is also Tractate Baba Batra, page 6b. Now, I have lots of stuff that I have issues with. But there's also stuff. So the issue for me is not the origin of the text. We have inherited a tradition filled with moral greatness and filled with moral challenges. And we have to learn how to pick. But we're only going to pick certain sources as distinct from others if we put God second. When we put God first, then we see certain chapters or certain pages as an expression of what we ought to do religiously. Whether, it, whether, whether God commands it or whether we have determined that that's Judaism, that's, the I, that's shaping me. That is shaping me today. When, when rabbis in Israel, day in and day out, and this is a small, we're talking just to ourselves. I'm not, in, I'm not into Israel bashing in general. I don't want to talk about it. But just as an example, when there is no, when, the, when, when, the, when, the, when, when every rabbi in Israel, or almost every rabbi, there's no war that we can't fight that's not justified. Something wrong is going on here, and it doesn't matter who wrote chapter 20. We've inherited, we see God manipulation, God intoxication, functioning all the time. And I could quote the other chapters. The problem is, is that the religious predisposition to hear them is not present because we have a different notion of what it means to be a person of faith. So it, the, in the book, I do actually deal more in depth with the question that you asked. But at the end of the day, it's not critical because we're, we are a religious tradition that believes that we, who we are is both written by God and written by human beings because the Talmud was written by human beings. We inherited the totality of a tradition. We have to now find the resources to pick which chapter we're going to read and which chapter we're not going to read. I hope that's enough um, for now. Um, yes, please. Um, really an honor to give you a personal Thank you. says, I'm <coughs> married. It's 
one thing I could help you with. I can help you with a lot. I can't help any of you, quite a few people. But is that today you have the choice to find a rabbi. In the Jewish community, you're not alone and you're not outside. Not every rabbi will necessarily marry. And that's not necessarily a moral or immoral act. It is an immoral act if they don't do everything to try to bring you and your children within our community. But today you have choices. You have choices. 70% of our community outside of orthodoxy, which is only 8% of the American Jewish community, are in your, are where you, are you. We are an intermarried community. The notion of Jew marrying Jew, having children, marrying Jew, having children, that's just not the story anymore of the Jewish people. You're now the majority. Most of the movements, now most of the movements, um, you have, I don't want to get too particular, but um, you have significant options. Significant options um, um, to find for yourself the place that you will feel is respectful to you and the, the places that will be respectful to your children are the majority of Jewish life today. So it's, um, the, the challenge is it's true. There might be some rabbis who you're close to who will not marry your child. But um, um, to respect, first of all, there are many rabbis who will. By the time your child grows up, how old is she or he? Oh, 29. They're already 20. You look, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I know how old? Bottle whatever you're doing. <laughs> and sell it. Um, 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 I thought your children were like four or five. <laughs> Aren't I nice? <laughs> but it's true. Um, but um, there, so forget that second part. Um, um, there, it's, the Jewish world has changed. I don't know where you are, but the Jewish world has changed. Um, and, and you do have those options. I get that. We've had wonderful, we've been to many weddings at this point, wonderful rabbis of Israel, not the rabbis of the Jewish community. Okay, that's, that's. They've brought in other rabbis and they've trained. I know, yeah. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, 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 thank you. I, yes, please, last question or comment. I think I'm zero for three. <laughs> I usually like question and answers. <laughs> no, the question, the issues you're posing are very, all of, all of them were very, very difficult. Yes, please.
Tractate Shabbat 38. Genesis chapter 18. Maimonides 2.25. I could keep on going, but I want you to buy my book. <laughs> what do I mean? What do I mean by that? Is you're right. That's exactly what I was saying. When somebody quotes, the first thing is to know there it's it's a legitimate quote. It is an integral putting God first is a powerful voice within our tradition. I make the case that there is another voice. But part of what I was saying is that if you combat that with the type of statement that you most beautifully made, you've lost. Not only have you lost, what you're doing is you're allowing somebody else to define what is, the, what, what, what is our authentic tradition, and you're moving outside of our tradition to be able to live up to the moral standards that you want to be committed to. When you do that, Judaism loses in the modern world. Everyone here, and that's why it's so, I, I, I was so happy to give this talk precisely in the Beit Midrash, in this program. Because what this program is about is about you being equipped with the pages. Not, well, I feel, etc., and, and it's not a nice thing. No! It's true. Genesis 22 exists. Genesis 22 is the most significant chapter of God intoxication. But Genesis 18 also exists. I'm a Genesis 18 Jew. <laughs> I know that Genesis 22 is there. And therefore, I'm not telling somebody they're not Jewish. I'm not telling them they're wrong. I'm telling them that we could do better. And the way you could do better is by mastering those 30 chapters and pages which substantiate an inner Jewish argument. I can't tell part of what, part, and this goes to the, to the, to the young um, woman's question beforehand. When, we, when our tradition, when, 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 when those who speak in the name of our tradition speak in a voice that the next generation can't identify with, and that the type of values that they care for are always presented as outside of the tradition, outside of our official Jewish community, outside of the establishment, because not, it's not just religion, but that there's a discourse that has to happen outside instead of inside, why would, any, why would anybody want to continue? Our job is to create, through, through our knowledge, space in our community for a different narrative, an inner Jewish narrative. To the best of my knowledge, Abraham and Hillel were, spoke within the Jewish tradition. We could walk in their footsteps. But to do so, we have to learn. It was a pleasure being with all of you today. Thank you. You know, I've always felt that I only wanted teachers that not only inspired me, but made me profoundly uncomfortable. And Rabbi Hartman is my teacher because he is someone who inspires me to try to do and be better, but also to feel profoundly uncomfortable with the status quo. Profoundly uncomfortable thinking we already know what we need to know. So I thank him, I thank all of you for joining, and I welcome you to join us for dessert. And if you like the cake at dessert, don't just thank Kitchen 18 for making the cake. You can thank my wife Shoshana, because it's her cake recipe. <laughs>
And uh, I invite you, if you haven't yet shared a contribution in the back or picked up our journal, please consider doing so. And I thank, once again, Stan Hammerman for bringing us to this point, excited for our new incoming chair, Mark Feldman, to lead us to the next point. And we hope we're all on this journey together. So have a wonderful night. Thank you so much.